9. The family could be distinctly traced in the enlargements and excrescences which contributed to the casual plan and irregular contour of the building. That one part in addition seemed to denote that the owner had acquired wealth about the time of the first James, and promptly directed it to the enlargement of his residence. In another a huge hall with classic brick frontage, dating from the commencement of the 18th century, spoke of an increase of affluence probably due to agricultural prosperity followed by the dignity of a peerage. The latest alterations appear to have been made during the Strawberry Hill epoch, when most of the Mayan windows had been transformed to suit the prevailing taste. Some of the building a little of it seemed habitable, but in the greater part the gables were tottering, the stucco frontage peeling and falling, and the windows broken and shuttered. In front of this wreck of a building stretched the overgrown remains of what once had been a terrace, bounded by large stone globes, now moss-grown and half-hidden under long grass. It was the very picture of desolation and proud poverty. We drove up to what had once been the entrance to the servants' hall, for the principal doorway had long been disused, and descending from the trap I was conducted to a small panel department, where some freshly cut logs did their best to give out a certain amount of heat. Of the hospitality meted out to me that day I can only hint with mournful appreciation. I was made welcome with all the resources which the family had available, but the place was a veritable vault and cold and damp as such. I think that the state of things had been endured so long and with such haughty silence by the inmates that it had passed into a sort of normal condition with them, and remained unnoticed except by newcomers. A few old domestics stuck by the family in its fallen fortunes, and of these one who had entered into their service some quarter of a century previous waited upon us at lunch with dignified ceremony. After lunch a tour of the house commenced. Into this I shall not enter into in detail, Many of the rooms were so bare that little could be said of them, but the great hall, an apartment modeled somewhat on the lines of the more palatial Rainham, needs the pen of the author of Lammermoor to describe. It was a very large and lofty room in the pseudo-classic style, with a fine cornice, and hung round with family portraits so bleached with damp and neglect that they presented but dim and ghostly presentments of their originals. I do not think a fire could have been lit in this ghostly gallery for many years and some of the portraits literally sagged in their frames with accumulations of rubbish which had dropped behind the canvases. Many of the pictures were of no value except for their associations, but I saw at least one only, a family group, the principal figure in which was a young lady displaying too little modesty and too much bosom. Another may have been a Vandyck, while one or two were early works representing the lots of Elizabeth's time in ruffs and feathered caps. The rest were for the most part but wooden ancestors displaying curled wigs, legs which lacked drawing, and high-heeled shoes. A few old cabinets remained, and a glorious suite of chairs of Queen Anne's time these, however, were perishing, like the rest from want of proper care and firing. The kitchens, a vast range of stone-flagged apartments, spoke of mighty hospitality in bygone times, containing fireplaces fit to roast oxen at whole, huge spits and countless hooks the last exhibiting but one dependent the skin of the rabbit shop for lunch. The atmosphere was, if possible, a trifle more penetrating than that of the great hall, and the walls were discolored with damp. Upstairs, besides the bedrooms, was a little chapel with some remains of Gothic carving, and a few interesting pictures of the 15th century, a cunningly contrived priest hole, and a long gallery lined with dusty books, whither my lord used to repair on rainy days. Many of the windows were darkened by creepers, and over one was a flap of half-detached plaster work which hung like a shroud, but, oh, the stained glass, 
the 18th century renovators had at least respected these, and quarterings and coats of arms from the 15th century downwards were to be seen by scores. What an opportunity for the genealogist with a history in view, but that opportunity I fear has passed forever. The whole estate was evidently mortgaged up to the hilt, and nothing intervened to prevent the dispersal of these treasures, which occurred some few months after my visit. Large though the building was, I learned that its size was once far greater, some two-thirds of the old building having been pulled down when the hall was constituted in its present form. Hard by on an adjoining estate a millionaire manufacturer who owned several motor cars had set up an establishment, but I gathered that his tastes were the reverse of antiquarian, and that no effort would be made to restore the old hall to its former glories and preserve such treasures as yet remained intact a golden opportunity to many people of taste with leanings towards a country life. But time fled, and the ragged retainer was once more at the door, so I left Hall in a blinding storm of rain, and took my last look at its gaunt façade, carrying with me the seeds of a cold which prevented me from visiting the eastern counties for some time to come. Some historic houses of rare beauty have only just escaped destruction, such an one is the ancestral house of the Comptons, Compton Wingates, a vision of color and architectural beauty a Tudor chimney bulk of mellow brickwork on an isle of bowers owing to his extravagance and the enormous expenses of a contested election in 1768. Spencer, the 8th Earl of Northampton, was reduced to cutting down the timber on the estate, selling his furniture at Castle Ashby and Compton, and spending the rest of his life in Switzerland. He actually ordered Compton Wingates to be pulled down, as he could not afford to repair it, happily the faithful steward of the estate, John Barry, did not obey the order. He did his best to keep out the weather and to preserve the house, asserting that he was sure the family would return there some day. Most of the windows were bricked up in order to save the window tax, and the glorious old building within whose walls kings and queens had been entertained remained bare and desolate for many years, excepting a small portion used as a farmhouse. All honor to the old man's memory, the faithful servant, who thus saved his master's noble house from destruction, the pride of the Midlands. Its latest historian, Miss Alice Dryden, thus describes its appearance, on approaching the building by the high road, the entrance front now bursts into view across a wide stretch of lawn, where formerly it was shielded by buildings forming an outer court, it is indeed a most glorious pile of exquisite coloring, built of small red bricks widely separated by mortar, with occasional checkers of blue bricks, the moldings and facings of yellow local stone, the woodwork of the two gables carved and black with age. The stone slates covered with lichens and mellowed by the hand of time, the whole building has an indescribable charm. The architecture, too, is all irregular, towers here and there, gables of different heights, any straight line embattled, few windows placed exactly over others, and the whole fitly surmounted by the elaborate brick chimneys of different designs, some fluted, others zigzagged, others spiral, or combined spiral and fluted, memorials of old Warwickshire. Edited by Miss Alice Dryden, an illustration is given of one of these chimneys which form such an attractive feature of the house. It is unnecessary to record the history of Compton Wingates. The present owner, the Marquis of Northampton, has written an admirable monograph on the annals of the house of his ancestors. Its builder was Sir William Compton, who by his valor in arms and his courtly ways gained the favor of Henry the III, and was promoted to high honor at the court. Dugdale states that in 1520 he obtained license to impart 2,000 acres at Overcompton and Nethercompton, alias Compton Vineyards, where he built a fair manor house, 
and where he was visited by the king, for over the gateway are the arms of France and England, under a crown, supported by the greyhound and griffin, and sided by the rose and the crown, probably in memory of Henry VIII's visit here, the Comptons ever basked in the smiles of royalty, Henry Compton, created Baron, was the favorite of Queen Elizabeth, and his son William succeeded in marrying the daughter of Sir John Spencer, richest of city merchants, all the world knows of his ingenious craft in carrying off the lady in a baker's basket, of his wife's disinheritance by the irate father, and of the subsequent reconciliation through the intervention of Queen Elizabeth at the baptism of the son of this marriage, the Comptons fought bravely for the king in the Civil War, their house was captured by the enemy, and besieged by James Compton, Earl of Northampton, and the story of the fighting about the house abounds in interest, but cannot be related here, the building was much battered by the siege and by Cromwell's soldiers, who plundered the house, killed the deer in the park, defaced the monuments in the church, and wrought much mischief, since the 18th century disaster to the family it has been restored, and remains to this day one of the most charming homes in England, the present Marquess of Northampton in his book contends that the house was mainly built in the reign of Henry VIII by Edmund Compton, Sir William's father, and that Sir William only enlarged and added to the house, we have not space to record the arguments in favor of or against this view, the progresses of James I by Nichols, the greatest advantages men have by riches are to give, to build, to plant, and make pleasant scenes, so wrote Sir William Temple, diplomatist, philosopher, and true garden lover, and many of the gentlemen of England seem to have been of the same mind, if we may judge from the number of delightful old country houses set amid pleasant scenes that time and war and fire had spared to us, Macaulay draws a very unflattering picture of the old country squire, as of the parson, his untruths concerning the latter I have endeavored to expose in another place, the manor houses themselves declare the historian's strictures to be unfounded, is it possible that men so ignorant and crude could have built for themselves residences bearing evidence of such good taste, so full of grace and charm, and surrounded by such rare blendings of art and nature as are displayed so often in park and garden, and it is not, as a rule, in the greatest mansions, the vast piles erected by the great nobles of the court, that we find such artistic qualities, but most often in the smaller manor houses of knights and squires. Certainly many higher cultured people of Macaulay's time and our own could learn a great deal from them of the art of making beautiful homes. Old Time Parson, by P. H. Ditchfield, 1908, Holinscht, the chronicler, writing during the third quarter of the 16th century, makes some illuminating observations on the increasing preference shown in his time for stone and brick buildings in place of timber and plaster. He wrote, the ancient manors and houses of our gentlemen are yet for the most part of strong timber. How bite such as be lately builded are commonly either of bricky or hard stone. Their owns large and stately, and houses of office farther distant fro their lodgings. Those of the nobility are likewise wrought with bricky and hard stone, as provision may best be made, but so magnificent and stately, as the basest house of a baron doth often match with some honors of princes in older time so that if ever curious building did flourish in England it is in these our days, wherein our workmen excel and are in manner comparable in skill with old Vitruvies and Searle. He also adds the curious information that there are old men yet dwelling in the village where I remain, which have noted three things to be marvelously altered in England within their sound remembrance. One island the multitude of chimneys lately erected, whereas, in their young days there were not above two or three, if so many 
in most uplandish towns of the realm the religious houses and manor places of their lords always accepted, and peradventure some great personage sparsonage, but each one made his fire against a rear dossi in the hall, where he dined and dressed his meat. This want of chimneys is noticeable in many pictures of, and previous to, the time of Henry VIII. A timber farmhouse yet remains or did until recently near Folkestone, which shows no vestige of either chimney or hearth. Most of our great houses and manor houses sprang up in the great Elizabethan building epoch, when the untold wealth of the monasteries which fell into the hands of the courtiers and favorites of the king, the plunder of gold-laden Spanish galleons, and the unprecedented prosperity in trade gave such an impulse to the erection of fine houses that the England of that period has been described as one great stonemason's yard. The great noblemen and gentlemen of the court were filled with the desire for extravagant display, and built such clumsy piles as Wollaton and Burley House, importing French and German artisans to load them with bastard Italian Renaissance detail. Some of these vast structures are not very admirable with their distorted gables, their chaotic proportions, and their crazy imitations of classic orders, but the typical Elizabethan mansion, whose builder's means or good taste would not permit of such a profusion of these architectural luxuries, is unequaled in its combination of stateliness with homeliness, in its expression of the manner of life of the class for which it was built, and in the humbler manners and farmhouses the latter idea is even more perfectly expressed, for houses were affected by the new fashions in architecture generally in proportion to their size. Holinch tells of the increased use of stone or brick in his age in the district wherein he lived, in other parts of England, where the forests supplied good timber, the builders stuck to their half-timbered houses and brought the black and white style to perfection, plaster was extensively used in this and subsequent ages, and often the whole surface of the house was covered with rough cast, such as the quaint old house called Broughton Hall, near Market Drayton, of Bury Manor, Wiltshire is an attractive example of the plastered house, the irregular roof line, the gables, and the white barred windows, and the contrast of the white walls with the rich green of the vines and surrounding trees combined to make a picture of rare beauty. Part of the house is built of stone and part half timber, but the coat of thin plaster covers the stonework and makes it conform with the rest. To plaster over stonework is a somewhat daring act, and is not architecturally correct, but the appearance of the house is altogether pleasing. The Elizabethan and Jacobean builder increased the height of his house, sometimes causing it to have three stories, besides rooms and attics beneath the gabled roof. He also loved windows. Light, more light, was his continued cry. Hence there is often an excess of windows, and Lord Bacon complained that there was no comfortable place to be found in these houses, in summer by reason of the heat, or in winter by reason of the cold. It was a sore burden to many a house owner when Charles I imposed the iniquitous window tax, and so heavily did this fall upon the owners of some Elizabethan houses that the poorer ones were driven to the necessity of walling up some of the windows which their ancestors had provided with such prodigality. You will often see to this day bricked up windows in many an old farmhouse. Not everyone was so cunning as the parish clerk of Bradford on Avon, Orpin who took out the window frames from his interesting little house near the church and inserted numerous small single-pane windows which escaped the tax. Surrey and Kemp afford an unlimited field for the study of the better sort of houses, mansions, and manor houses. We have already alluded to Hover Castle and its memories of Anne Boleyn. Then there is the historic Penshurst, the home of the Sydneys, haunted by the shades of Sir Philip, Sacherissa, the ill-fated Algernon, and his handsome brother. You see their portraits on the walls, the fine gallery, 
and the hall, which reveals the exact condition of an ancient noble's hall in former days. Not far away are the manors of Crittenden, Uttenden, and Crowhurst. This last is one of the most picturesque in Surrey, with its moat, across which there is a fine view of the house, its half-timber work, the straight uprights placed close together signifying early work, and the striking character of the interior. The Gainsford family became lords of the manor of Crowhurst in 1337, and continued to hold it until 1700, a very long record. In 1903 the place was purchased by the Ref. Gainsford, of Hitchin, a descendant of the family of the former owners. This is a rare instance of the repossession of a medieval residence by an ancient family after the lapse of 200 years. It was built in the 15th century, and is a complete specimen of its age and style. Having been unspoiled by later alterations and additions, the part nearer the Moat Island however, a little later than the gables further back. The dining room is the contracted remains of the Great Hall of Crowhurst Place, the upper part of which was converted into a series of bedrooms in the 18th century. We give an illustration of a very fine hinge to a cupboard door in one of the bedrooms, a good example of the blacksmith's skill. It is noticeable that the points of the linen fold in the paneling of the door are undercut and project sharply. We see the open frame floor with molded beams. Later on the fashion changed, and the builders preferred to have square-shaped beams. We notice the fine old paneling, the elaborate moldings, and the fixed bench running along one end of the chamber, of which we give an illustration. The design and workmanship of this fixture show it to belong to the period of Henry VII. All the work is of stout timber, save the fireplace. The smith's art is shown in the fine candelabrum and in the knocker or ring plate, perforated with Gothic design, still backed with its original Morocco leather. It is worthy of a sanctuary and doubtless many generations of Crowhurst squires have found a very dear sanctuary in this grand old English home. This ring plate is in one of the original bedrooms. Immense labor was often bestowed upon the moldings of beams in these 15th century houses. There was a very fine molded bean in a farmhouse in my own parish, but a recent restoration has, alas, covered it. We give some illustrations of the cornice moldings of the church house, Doubterst, Count, and of a fine Gothic door head. It is impossible for us to traverse many shires in our search for old houses, but a word must be said for the priceless contents of many of our historic mansions and manors. These often vanish and are lost forever. I had alluded to the thirst of American millionaires for these valuables, which causes so many of our treasures to cross the Atlantic and find their home in the palaces of Boston and Washington and elsewhere. Perhaps if our valuables must leave their old resting places and go out of the country, we should prefer them to go to America than to any other land. Our American cousins are our kindred, they know how to appreciate the treasures of the land that, in spite of many changes, is to them their mother country. No nation in the world prizes a high lineage and a family tree more than the Americans, and it is my privilege to receive many inquiries from across the Atlantic for missing links in the family pedigree, and the joy that a successful search yields compensates for all one's trouble. So if our treasures must go we should rather send them to America than to Germany. It island however, distressing to see pictures taken from the place where they had hung for centuries and sent to Christie's, to see the dispersal of old libraries at Sotheby's, and the contents of a house, amassed by generations of cultured and wealthy folk, scattered to the four winds and bought up by the nouveau riches, there still remain in many old houses collections of armor that bears the dints of many fights, swords, helmets, Shields, lances, and other weapons of warfare often are seen hanging on the walls of an ancestral hall. 
the both coats of Cromwell's soldiers, tilting helmets, guns and pistols of many periods are all there, together with man traps the cruel invention of a barbarous age. The historic hall of Littlecote bears on its walls many suits worn during the Civil War by the parliamentary troopers, and in countless other halls you can see specimens of armor. In churches also much armor has been stored. It was the custom to suspend over the tomb the principal arms of the departed warrior, which had previously been carried in the funeral procession. Shakespeare alludes to this custom when, in Hamlet, he makes Laertes say, his means of death, his obscure burial no trophy, sword, nor hatchment or his bones, no noble right, nor formal ostentation. You can see the armor of the Black Prince over his tomb at Canterbury, and at Westminster the shield of Henry V that probably did its duty at Agincourt. Several of our churches still retain the arms of the heroes who lie buried beneath them, but occasionally it is not the actual armor but sham. Counterfeit helmets and breastplates made for the funeral procession and hung over the monument. Much of this armor has been removed from churches and stored in museums. Norwich Museum has some good specimens, of which we give some illustrations. There is a knight's bassinet which belongs to the time of Henry V circa 1415. We can compare this with the solids, which came into use shortly after this period, an example of which may be seen at the Port Hill, Brussels. We also show a 13th century sword, which was dredged up at Thorpe, and believed to have been lost in 1277. When King Edward I made a military progress through Suffolk and Norfolk, and kept his Easter at Norwich, the blade is scimitar-shaped, is one-edged, and has a groove at the back. We may compare this with the sword of the time of Edward I. Be now in the possession of Mr. Seymour Lucas. The development of riding boots is an interesting study. We show a drawing of one in the possession of Mr. Ernest Crofts, R.A. which was in use in the time of William I.I.I. An illustration is given of a chapel defer which reposes in the noble hall of Aquels, Berkshire, much dented by use. It has evidently seen service. In the same hall is collected by the friends of the author, Sir Edward and Lady Barry. A vast store of armor and most interesting examples of ancient furniture worthy of the beautiful building in which they are placed. Aquels Manor House is goodly to look upon. A perfect example of 15th century residence with its noble hall and minstrels gallery. Its solar kitchens, corridors, and gardens. Moreover, it is now owned by those who love and respect antiquity and its architectural beauties, and is in every respect an old English mansion well preserved and tenderly cared for. Yet at one time it was almost doomed to destruction. Not many years ago it was the property of a man who knew nothing of its importance. He threatened to pull it down or to turn the old house into a tannery. Our Burke's Archaeological Society endeavored to raise money for its purchase in order to preserve it. This action helped the owner to realize that the house was of some commercial value. Its destruction was stayed, and then, happily, it was purchased by the present owners, who have done so much to restore its original beauties. Aquetos was built by Sir John Norris about the year 1466. The chapel was not completed at his death in 1467 and he left money in his will, to the full building and making up of the chapel with the chambres adjoining with my manoir of occult in the parish of Bray aforesaid not yet finished exilly. This chapel was burnt down in 1778. One of the most important features of the hall is the heraldic glass, commemorating 18 worthies, which is of the same date as the house. The credit of identifying these worthies is due to Mr. Everard Green, Rouge Dragon who in 1899 communicated the result of his researches to Viscount Dillon, president of the Society of Antiquaries. There are 18 shields of arms, 
to our royal and ensign with royal crowns, to our ensign with mitres and fourteen with mantled helms, and of these fourteen, thirteen support a crest. Each achievement is placed in a separate light on an ornamental background composed of quarries and alternate diagonal stripes of white glass bordered with gold, on which the motto faithfully serve is inscribed in black letter. This motto is assigned by some to the family of Norris and by others as that of the royal wardrobe. The quarries in each light had the same badge, namely, three golden distaffs, one in pale and two in saltier, banded with a golden and tasseled ribbon, which badge some again assigned to the family of Norris and others to the royal wardrobe. If, however, the Norris arms are correctly set forth in a compartment of a door head remaining in the north wall, and also in one of the windows namely, Argent a chevron between three ravens heads erased sable, with a beaver for a dexter supporter the second conjecture is doubtless correct. These shields represent the arms of Sir John Norris, the builder of Aquetel's manor house, and of his sovereign, patrons, and kinsfolk. It is a liberamicorum in glass, a not unpleasant way for light to come to us, as Mr. Everard Green pleasantly remarks, by means of heraldry Sir John Norris recorded his friendships thereby adding to the pleasures of memory as well as to the splendor of his great hall, his eye saw the shield, his memory supplied the story, and to him the lines of George Eliot, O memories, O past that island were made possible by heraldry, the names of his friends and patrons so recorded in glass by their arms are, Sir Henry Beauchamp, 6th Earl of Warwick, Sir Edmund Beaufort, K.G., Margaret of Anjou, Queen of Henry VI, the dawnless Queen of Tears, who headed councils, led armies, and ruled both kin and people, Sir John de la Pole, K.G., Henry V.I., Sir James Butler, the Abbey of Abingdon, Richard Beauchamp, Bishop of Salisbury from 1450 to 1481, Sir John Norris himself, Sir John Winlock, of Winlock, Shropshire, Sir William Lacan, of Stowe, Count, buried at Bray, the arms and crest of a member of the Mortimer family, Sir Richard Nanthan, of Burt's Morton Court, Worcestershire, Sir John Norris with his arms quartered with those of Alice Murbury, of Yachton, his first wife, Sir John Langford, who married Sir John Norris's granddaughter, a member of the Delobich family, John Porry, of Thatcham, Bray, and Cookham, Richard Bulstrode, of Upton, Buckinghamshire, keeper of the great wardrobe to Queen Margaret of Anjou, and afterwards comptroller of the household to Edward Ivy. These are the worthies whose arms are recorded in the windows of Aquettles. Nash gave a drawing of the house in his mansions of England in the olden time, showing the interior of the hall, the porch and corridor, and the east front, and from the hospitable door is issuing a crowd of daily dressed people in Elizabethan costume, such as was doubtless often witnessed in days of yore. It is a happy and fortunate event that this noble house should in its old age have found such a loving master and mistress, in whose family we hope it may remain for many long years. Another grand old house has just been saved by the National Trust and the bounty of an anonymous benefactor. This is Barrington Court, and is one of the finest houses in Somerset. It is situated a few miles east of Ilminster, in the hundred of South Penderton. Its exact age is uncertain, but it seems probable that it was built by Henry, Lord Daubeny, created Earl of Bridgewater in 1539, whose ancestors had owned the place since early Plantagenet times, at any rate. It appears to date from about the middle of the 16th century, and it is a very perfect example of the domestic architecture of that period. From the Daubenies it passed successively to the Duke of Suffolk, the Crown, the Cliftons, the Felixes, the Strodes, and one of this last family entertained the Duke of Monmouth there during his tour in the West in 1680. 
The house, which is E-shaped, with central porch and wings at each end, is built of the beautiful ham hill stone which abounds in the district. The color of this stone greatly enhances the appearance of the house and adds to its venerable aspect. It has little ornamental detail, but what there is is very good, while the loftiness and general proportions of the building its extent and solidity of masonry, and the taste and care with which every part has been designed and carried out, give it an air of dignity and importance. The angle buttresses to the wings and the porch rising to twisted terminals are a feature surviving from medieval times, which disappeared entirely in the buildings of Stuart times. These twisted terminals with cupola-like tops are also upon the gables, and with the chimneys, also twisted, give a most pleasing and attractive character to the structure. We may go far, indeed, before we find another house of stone so lightly and gracefully adorned, and the detail of the Mayan windows with their arched heads, in every light, and their water tables above, is admirable. The porch also has a fine Tudor arch, which might form the entrance to some college quadrangle, and there are rooms above and gables on either hand. The whole structure breathes the spirit of the Tudor age, before the classic spirit had exercised any marked influence upon our national architecture, while the details of the carving are almost as rich as is the molded and sculptured work in the brick houses of East Anglia. The features in other parts of the exterior are all equally good, and we may certainly say of Barrington Court that it occupies a most notable place in the domestic architecture of England. It is also worthy of remark that such house, 